0: we believe miracles have ceased." And at the next hour we'll talk about why we believe hell to be real and eternal. And Then we'll conclude this evening by talking about why we do not believe that the doctrine of once saved always saved. So let's focus on this question, why do we believe that miracles have ceased? Let's begin by talking about those who believe in miracles, those who claim to believe in miracles at least. There are a number of our religious friends who claim that miracles are in existence today. Some of those are people who rely on miracles to the point they will not seek medical help. So if they have a heart attack or they because that's not trusting in God, you've got to trust in miracles, and so consequently, some of them die because they did not seek the medical help. And so they truly believe, or at least they are trying to be consistent, maybe is a better way of wording that, with what they claim to believe there are others who believe in miracles and then they'll seek medical help they'll go to the doctor and so you have a heart attack and you go to the doctor and he says I need to do open heart surgery he does open heart surgery and then the claim is that was a miracle you recovered from that and so God working through the medical field is called a miracle in their book And then there's some who have faith healing services. Not all who claim to have uh, miracles today will have some kind of faith healing services. Uh, One of the more notable is that of Oral Roberts. Here's his picture over here on the small picture on the side. It's Oral Roberts having one of his faith healing campaigns. But that's one of the more notable ones. On a smaller scale, uh, there have been some right here in Franklin, I'm sure. There's some in Shelbyville that they'll have a uh, tent meeting and they'll have a healing service. And this is where people come, and they lay their hands on them, and they say heal, and they are supposed to be healed of their uh, infirmity, whatever it may be. All of those, though, believe in Holy Spirit baptism for believers today, just as the apostles had. So the same measure of the Spirit the apostles experienced, that Holy Spirit baptism, they claim it's for believers today. So let's begin by talking about what a miracle is. That's important. If we talk about miracles, have miracles ceased? Let's define a miracle. Because that term is used rather loosely in, in religious conversation today, even among Christians sometimes, something amazing happens and we say, Boy, that was a miracle. Um, and yet we're using biblical terms in non biblical ways. So let's define a miracle. W.E. Vine says that a word that's translated miracle means the work of a superna- work of supernatural origin and character such as could not be produced by natural agents and means. It is a work of supernatural measure that is not duplicated by some natural means. Now we'll give some illustration of that here as we go further. I want to suggest to you that when we talk about miracles and miracles ceasing, it's not a question of God's power or God's working. Quite often in discussion with those who believe in miracles today, they charge that we do not believe in the power of God. You question the power of God. You don't believe God's working today. It's not a question, is God working today? It's not a question of God's power, and I'm going to demonstrate that as we go further. I want to show you something on the side that we may label as providence, God working through natural means, and on the other side, God working supernaturally, and yet the same thing occurred. On both sides, we have the birth of a child. On both sides, we have the controlling of the weather. Let's take the birth of a child. You remember Samuel's birth was in answer to prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the birth, no indication there was anything supernatural, like a virgin birth, for example, but rather a birth of a man and a woman having a child. That's all that seems to be. There's nothing in the context to suggest there was some miraculous measure like, again, a virgin birth. But then on the other side, we have the birth of Christ. Obviously, that was a virgin birth. Now, there is something supernatural about that. There's something that's contrary to nature. So on the one side, you have that which is uh, natural means, and on the other side, we have that which is supernatural. Well, over here we have a weather change and over there we have a weather change. Over here what we have is the case of Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain and praying that it did rain, or would rain, and it did, that both of those occurred. You say, I think that was a miracle. Well, maybe it was, but here's my reason for thinking it wasn't a miracle. That's mentioned in James chapter 5 as an example of the power of prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, verse 16. His illustration of the power of prayer is the example of Elijah. So that seems to be a case of of God's providence, God working through natural means of changing the weather. God could do that today. But in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus calmed the storm, that was obviously a miracle, a supernatural event. So my point is that it's not a question, is God working? Oh yes, God's working. Is God involved in the birth of every child? He certainly is. But not every birth of a child is miraculous like the virgin birth. Can God control the weather in answer to our prayers? Can things be changed? Maybe a storm coming through? We pray that we'd be safe and the storm passes on and and no damage is done. Could that be God's power in uh, the changing of the weather? Certainly so. That comes under the matter of natural means and the act of providence. But here's a question that we've asked numbers of times, and it's not original with me, but in discussion with those who are of this concept that miracles are present today, that Do you think God has the power to make a woman out of the rib of a man like he did in Genesis 1 and 2? And the answer is obviously going to be, well, sure I do, but then does that mean he's doing it today? Well, no, he's not doing that today. Well, then you don't believe in the power of God, do you? Oh, no, I believe in the power of God, I just don't believe he's doing that. God has the power to make a woman from a rib, but he's not doing that today. It's not a question of his power, it's not a question of his working, that's just something he's not doing anymore. So let's raise the question why do we believe that miracles have ceased? So here's the first reason because the, there was a purpose miracles has been accomplished. There is no need for miracles. There was a purpose for the miracles. First of all, I want to suggest to you that they were not for the betterment of mankind. Some have the idea that the working of miracles was merely for the betterment of mankind. Feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 was merely trying to feed those who are hungry. And healing people was merely to try to make people better. I argue that that's not the case because not all people were fed. There were 5,000, there were 4,000, but there were more people who needed food than 4,000 and 5,000. Why wasn't the whole world fed? Because Jesus had the power to do that. The same thing with healing every person that was ever sick. Every person that was ever sick or ever dead could have been raised. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't for the betterment of mankind. The purpose of miracles was for the confirmation of the message or the claim. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, He could work a miracle and give evidence of His claim. The same thing with the apostles. As they're preaching the deity of Christ, they could give evidence of that. Let's open our Bibles to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16, beginning at verse 17. The text says, These signs will follow those who believe. They will take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, notice at verse 19, After the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. The very signs just mentioned earlier in the context. So it was for the confirmation of the word. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, 3, and 4 says the word has been confirmed. So a word in a message that has been confirmed doesn't need to be confirmed again and again and again. And so that's like going to the notary public and they're confirming this is your signature. Once you've done that, you don't need to do it again and again and again and again and again because it's already been confirmed. So the message has been confirmed. Another purpose for miracles was revealing the word. Let's go to John chapter 16. As you're turning to John 16, let me remind you that John chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16 and 17 go together as a unit of chapters where Jesus is in discussion with his disciples. And here is a promise that he makes to them in John 16 and in verse 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, and He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, that will He speak, and He will tell you things to come. Now let's jump over to uh, go back to chapter 14 now, John chapter 14 and in verse 26, but when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance." So what was the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming up on the apostles? To reveal the Word of God. The Word of God is complete. It is complete. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 and in verse 3. The Word has been confirmed and consequently we have the complete doctrine. Notice what Jude verse 3 says. Let's go to the book of Jude verse 3. Notice he said that the Word... Uh, was once delivered to the saints. I have found it necessary to write to you, exhorting uh, you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So the word of God has been revealed. The word of God is complete. Furthermore, and we'll say more about this in a moment, so I'm just gonna quickly pass on this point, that the purpose of the miracles on the household of Cornelius was to prove that the Gentiles are gospel subjects. We now know the Gentiles are gospel subjects. So the purpose indeed has ceased. All right, let's move to another point. Holy Spirit, we can work miracles, has ceased. The claim is we have Holy Spirit baptism today, and therefore we can work miracles today because we have that empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But let's notice the Bible teaches that Holy Spirit baptism has ceased. There are two cases of Holy Spirit baptism in the New Testament. Some think only one. And if that's the case, then that even minimizes uh, any example of that. But I think there were two, and we'll talk about those two in just a moment. Let's start with case number one, and that is the apostles. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, and notice in verses 4 and 5. Notice in Acts chapter 1, at verse 4 and 5, the promise of Holy Spirit baptism was given to the apostles. And being assembled together with them, that is the apostles, mentioned earlier in the context, Notice at verse 3, 2 and 3, 2 mentions the apostles. The being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard of me. Now verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you, that is the apostles, shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the promise was given to the apostles. It wasn't given to everyone, but it was given to the apostles. Well, let's go now to Acts chapter 2 and notice that the apostles were the ones who received Holy Spirit baptism. If you're so disposed to mark things in your Bible, I encourage you to mark some things beginning at verse 26 of chapter 1 for future reference when you talk to someone about who received Holy Spirit baptism in Acts 2. The argument is the 120 that were gathered in the upper room in chapter 1 received Holy Spirit baptism. And those who argue the Holy Spirit baptism for today, they go to Acts 2 and say, those who received it were the 120 disciples that are mentioned in the previous chapter. You'll remember from your English class that a pronoun refers to its nearest antecedent. So let's now notice in Acts chapter 1 and verse 26, that they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You might underline that word apostles in your Bible. And now remember chapter division is given by man. So the next sentence is, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, they who? Who's the they refer to? It refers to the nearest antecedent. It refers to the apostles. They, the apostles, were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They who? The apostles that we just talked about, chapter 1, verse 26. And there appeared upon them, cloven tongues, like as a fire, and set upon each of them, that is the apostles. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Obviously, we're talking about the apostles. It was promised to them. They received Holy Spirit baptism in Acts chapter 2. Now, what was the purpose for the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles? It had a purpose. What was that purpose? It was to reveal truth. We've already read from John 16 in verse 13. To show them things to come, same verse. We read a moment ago from John 14. To teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance. That has been accomplished. So it came upon the apostles for what purpose? To reveal truth, to confirm the message. Both have been accomplished and consequently then There is no need for Holy Spirit baptism today, but let's go further. There is a second case of Holy Spirit baptism, I think, and that is the case of Cornelius. So if one argues, well, I don't think that's a case of Holy Spirit baptism, all right, then, then we just mark that one off. That doesn't even come to play then on the discussion of whether miracles are present today. But I think it does come to play because it is a case of Holy Spirit baptism. So let's raise the question, did Cornelius receive Holy Spirit baptism? And let's look at some examples or some passages that will help us with that. Let's go to Acts chapter 10, the case of the conversion of Cornelius. And I want you to notice some expressions that would indicate that what he received was the same measure of the Spirit that the apostles received. Look at verse 45. Then those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles... Also, there was something that happened to the Gentiles that was much like what happened to the apostles. You say, well, I'm not convinced. Well, let's go further. Look at verse 47. Peter said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The King James says, as well as we. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did. Seems to be the same thing, doesn't it? Well, now, let's go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts, you say, what's Acts 11 got to do with this? Well, in Acts chapter 11, what we have is Peter rehearsing by order the things that took place over at the household of Cornelius. So I want you to notice in Acts chapter 11 and in verse 15 now, he said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Not at Acts 2. He said, The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius like it did on us at the beginning. Drop to verse 16. Whatever took place there at the household of Cornelius reminded Peter of the events of Acts 1 and Acts 2. For he said, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's recalling that promise of Acts 1 of Holy Spirit baptism on the apostles. Whatever took place at the household of Cornelius, he said, I thought about that promise given to us. That's what I remembered. Now look at verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift, King James says like gift, he gave them the same gift even as he did unto us. Now there's a third text where Peter tells about those events, and this is at that discussion in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So let's go to Acts 15 and look at verse 8 where he said, God who knows their hearts acknowledged them by giving in the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Well, I'm convinced that's sufficient evidence to say he received Holy Spirit baptism. Well, whatever it was that he received, what was its purpose? If you don't mark anything about the conversion of Cornelius and the Spirit coming upon Cornelius, I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 18 and mark this, because this was its purpose. When Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and told him, here's what took place. The conclusion of those in Jerusalem who heard the message did not say, well, now we know that all believers in all ages are going to receive the Holy Spirit. That wasn't their conclusion. Their conclusion wasn't, since they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, we must conclude he was saved before he was baptized. That wasn't their conclusion. Here was the conclusion. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then has God also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. What his conclusion was, their conclusion was, that now proves that Gentiles are now gospel subjects and the gospel can go to the Gentiles. So that was the purpose of it coming on the household of Cornelius. Now let's talk about what those who had Holy Spirit baptism could do. Now we're not going to go through every passage. I just want to list these. If we need to go back and look at these later, we can do that. But for example, they could speak in other tongues. Now what does that mean? That means they spoke in another language. Every man heard each one speak in his own language wherein he was born, Acts 2, 6 and 8. So it was not that they could speak his jibber-jabber, not knowing what they were saying, but they could speak an intelligible language that they had not studied. For example, I cannot speak Greek. I cannot speak Hebrew. I cannot speak German. But if I had the miraculous measure, the idea of speaking, Speaking German, I could speak that language, having never studied that. That was the idea of speaking in tongues. But furthermore, they could heal those that were lame, like the lame man, which was a notable miracle, according to Acts chapter 4. They could also do this. They could strike one dead. I don't mean they could shoot him, but they could speak, and consequently they fall dead, like the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said, you're going to drop dead because of what you did, and they did That not only that, they could raise the dead like Dorcas or like Eutychus. They could speak and raise one from the dead. Here's something else they could do. They could strike one blind. Not talking about throwing an opposer of one's eyes, but speaking and saying you're going to be blind because you are an opposer of the truth. Like Elamus in Acts chapter 13. They could speak without taking thought. You see, those who claim Holy Spirit baptism... They don't need to sit in an office and in a study and uh, begin to prepare their lessons. There is no need for that. There's no need to take thought, because God would give those who had the Holy Spirit baptism, both how and what they should speak. They could impart miraculous gifts. The apostles who had that measure could lay their hands, according to Acts chapter eight, up on someone else, and they receive a measure of the spirit, miraculous power there is no indication that power could be transferred from that point forward. That's what those with Holy Spirit baptism could do. Now, today, there is just one baptism. And we're arguing that Holy Spirit baptism has ceased. And why do we say it ceased? Because the Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, there are those who believe in Holy Spirit baptism, they believe in practice water baptism. Maybe not for the remission of sins, but they're practicing water baptism. And they believe in Holy Spirit baptism. I want to show you these are not the same. They differ in the element, they differ in who administers it, in the nature of it and its purpose. How so? In Holy Spirit baptism, the element one is baptized in is they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're overwhelmed with the Spirit. Where on the other side, the element is water. They're immersed in water, Acts 8 in verse 38. That's not the same thing. Who administers that? Well, Jesus would administer Holy Spirit baptism, John 1, But men administer water baptism. So they differ. The nature, this one is a promise. No one was ever commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was promised to them. It was never a command. Water baptism isn't a promise, it's a command. It's a difference. And furthermore, what was the purpose? This is to reveal truth. That one is in order to be saved, Mark 16 and in verse 16. So which baptism is needed today? Which one prevails today? The one where there is still a need for being saved, but revealing truth since it already has been revealed, that must be the baptism that has ceased. Now, let's go further. We're still trying to answer the question, why we believe miracles have ceased. The purpose has been accomplished. Holy Spirit baptism has ceased. But furthermore, miracles would cease when the complete revelation of God came about. Now, it's interesting to look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. They go together as a unit of chapters. How so? Chapter 12 deals with what I call the enumeration of the gifts, listing of the the spiritual gifts. This was the gift that one would receive by the laying on of the apostles of the gifts. How long they will just a moment. Chapter 13 deals with the duration of the gifts, how long they will last. Chapter 14 deals with the regulation of those gifts. So they go together as a unit of chapters. Let's talk about the enumeration of those gifts, so I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and let's talk about the enumeration of the gifts. What are some of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Well, beginning at verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. There are different measures, there's different gifts, but it all comes from the same Spirit is what he's arguing. Now, beginning at verse 8, he talks about to one is the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and another the word of knowledge through the Spirit same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, another the gift of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the discerning of spirits, and to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretations of tongues." And so we have nine gifts that are mentioned here. Our purpose is not to analyze each one of those, but these were all miraculous things. This faith was a miraculous faith. This word of knowledge was miraculous knowledge. The same thing with wisdom. Obviously, prophecy, discerning of spirits, interpretation of tongues, the working of miracles, those are miraculous gifts. But the question for our study is, how long would those last? Chapter 13 deals with the duration of those gifts. So if you're so disposed to Mark, you might want to get some things in Mark, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if this is not already marked in your Bible. Let's notice beginning at verse 8. At verse 8, he says, love never fails. That was what was lacking in the church at Corinth. And that's the reason they were having division over the spiritual gifts is they were lacking in love. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. In other words, prophecies are going to come to an end. Then he says, whether there are tongues, they will cease. Tongues are going to stop. Miraculous tongues. He just talked about miraculous tongues and prophecy, both of which are miraculous. And then he says, and whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. That miraculous knowledge is going to cease. The knowledge that was mentioned in chapter 12. So whatever he's talking about in chapter 12, those miraculous gifts are going to, how's he used, what words does he use? Fail cease and vanish away. When will that take place? Well, he mentions at verse 10, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, obviously, our religious friends who believe in miracles, when they have a debate on this subject, they'll go to this and start with this passage. You say, that's a strange place to start. Not when they twist the passage because they think the perfect is the perfect Christ that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will cease and vanish away and fail when Jesus returns. So until then we have miracles. Well now let's raise the question, what is that which is perfect? Notice it says that which is perfect and not he who is perfect. But what is that which is perfect? We'll let the context define that for us. Let's take that word perfect. The word perfect and these are lexicographers who are authorities in defining the language. They're not commentators, they're lexicographers like Webster would be to our language. And so here's what they say the word perfect means. Thayer says it means brought to its end, finished, wanting nothing necessary to completeness, perfect. He says this word perfect means complete, not flawless, but perfect. By the way, let me footnote, we're commanded to be perfect as God is perfect, Matthew 5, remember that? Verses 44 to 48 not talking about being flawless, like God is flawless. But God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He's good to everyone. So we should be the same. We're to, we're to be perfect. That is, wanting nothing necessarily to completeness. Complete. Vine says it means signifies having reached its end, finished, complete, and perfect. Complete, strong, Liddell and Scott, complete, perfect, entire. I am not aware where the term perfect is used in the New Testament. In the sense of flawlessness, it may be, but I'm just not aware of that. Every passage that I know that uses the word perfect, it always has reference to completion, being complete. And that's how it's used here. That's what the authorities say that word means. But let's see that from the context. We talk about something being in part in contrast to that which is complete. We understand that from this pie chart that you have a part of that pie or you have the complete pie if you shove it back in. And so there is a difference in that which is incomplete, a part or a portion, and that which is whole. Now, let's see in the context. Let's let the Bible define itself. What is it that is in part or incomplete in contrast to that which is complete? Let's go back now to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at verse 9. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, notice particularly two things there is knowledge and prophecy. That has reference to God's revelation. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Our knowledge, the prophecy, is incomplete. So here is partial knowledge, partial prophecy. But when that which is complete or perfect, that is, that which is incomplete is God's revelation, so the complete must be God's revelation as well, because he's comparing something incomplete with something that is complete. It doesn't make sense to talk about the incomplete revelation and then the flawless Christ returning. Let us see, let's put that on for size and see how that works. Notice up here at the top that the perfect must be of the same nature as that which is in part. No one would talk this way. You'd think they were crazy if someone said, You know what? I've been working out here on the job site and I've got a partially full wheelbarrow, and if I keep at it, I'm going to have a completely full coffee cup. You'd say, what? Wait a minute, I missed. What, what, what did you say? That doesn't make sense. It's not of the same nature. You're talking about something being incomplete, and then you talk about a completely full coffee cup. Well, for someone to talk about partial revelation and then the coming of Christ, that's not the, con- it's not of the same nature anymore than the coffee cup is of the same nature as the wheelbarrow. But here's what we would say. We might have a partially full ice cream cone as we're dipping into it. And then we're going to have a completely full ice cream cone. That's of the same nature, isn't it? We might have a partially full wheelbarrow and then a completely full wheelbarrow. A partially full cup and a completely full cup. That which is in part must be of the same nature as that which is complete. That which is complete must be of the same nature as that which is in part. If this is partial revelation, then that which is complete is perfect or complete revelation. So now let's go back to our text. The tongues are going to cease. The prophecies are going to fail. Perfect is come when the complete revelation is given. Now let's look at two illustrations that are given in the context that confirm this very point. Notice at verse 11, we just dropped off at verse 10. Here are two illustrations that I didn't dream up. Paul put this in the text itself. And notice what he says at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, or understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now notice that the one on the one side over here, you have... When I was a child, he said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, behaved as a child, and understood as a child. But then when I became a man, this person here is the same one that was immature here, now he's mature. You don't talk about when I was a child, I behaved like a child, but then when I got a dog. What does that have to do with it? That doesn't make sense. But this one who is mature is the same one that was immature. Immature. Same nature. All right, let's do a second illustration. Look at verse 12. He said, For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. First century mirrors, I am told, and have seen pictures of them from, I think I remember Farrell Jenkins demonstrating one at a lecture one year, that first century mirrors would be like looking into the shiny fender of your car, or maybe the window of your car, where you can see your reflection, but it's not a clear picture not like looking in our modern-day mirrors. And so here is this dim image. I see something, but then he says it's like seeing face-to-face. The same one that's being seen in the mirror is the same one you're seeing face-to-face. That is incomplete knowledge, that is incomplete vision with complete vision. That which is imperfect is of the same nature. It sees when the complete revelation has come. We have the complete revelation. God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and in verse 3. Now let's talk about that there is no evidence of miracles today. One of the reasons we say miracles have ceased is because there is no evidence of miracles today. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what they could do. They could speak in tongues they never studied. Now today people make that claim and they'll claim to speak in tongues and it's ecstatic static jibber-jabber. By the way, 1 Corinthians fourteen, when the regulation of the tongues came about, they were told not to speak unless there be an interpreter present. Isn't it interesting? If you've ever been to one of the Pentecostal um, charismatic meetings, there'll be over one speaking in tongue over here, one speaking in tongue over there, and there's not an interpreter who's telling them here's what that means. I've asked some of them before. I ran into one at a bookstore one day, and he was she was speaking in tongues, and I said. Uh, Do you have the gift of tongues? She said, yes, I do. And I said, that's great because I have the gift of interpretation. So speak in tongues for me and she did and it was a static jibber jabber. And I said, here's what that means. It means, I said, do you know what it means? She said, no, I don't know what it means. I said, you're saying you're trying to deceive us and you're lying to us. Oh no, I didn't say that. How do you know you didn't say that? You didn't, you don't have an interpreter that you're supposed to have an interpreter and I am an interpreter. I'm telling you, you said I'm lying to you. Well then she decided she didn't need to speak in tongues. My point I want you to see is they could speak in tongues, not hystatic jibber-jabber, but what they could do was speak in a language they have never studied. So here's someone who shows up and they they uh, speak German. We need someone to speak to them and communicate to them. You could miraculously speak in German having never studied the language at all. But that's not all. They could do wonders and signs, Acts 2 in verse 43. That's miraculous things. They could heal the lame. They could strike one dead, as we've already mentioned. They could heal everyone. They could raise the dead. They could strike one blind. They could speak without taking thought. They could do all of those things. And I've challenged some of them when they claim to work miracles. I'll tell you what. Let's, uh, I know someone that's, that's lame. I know someone that's sick. I know someone that's, that's ill. You go heal them, and I'll preach your doctrine the rest of my life raise the first one, but I'll raise the second one. Let's do that. Let's go raise the whole cemetery. Oh no, we can't test God now. We can't do that. But those who could work miracles could do those things. When, when I talk to some of you know, most of you probably know this, but some of the young ones maybe never have dealt with someone who believes this, that you don't ever hear of them saying when they say, well, I saw a miracle. Have you ever seen a miracle? Oh yeah, I've seen miracles. You have? Well, tell me about your miracle you've seen. Well, they never tell us, I saw a man struck blind because he was a false teacher. They never say, I saw one struck dead or I saw, I saw someone who is lame from their birth. I saw them walk again. What they say is, I heard about a case over somewhere else and they were healed. That's your case. You, you didn't actually see this. You, didn't, you say there was a miracle, but you didn't see someone that you knew was lame and couldn't walk and they suddenly walk. Uh, You didn't see someone was on the deathbed. They rose up and began to, to, to act again. No, I didn't see that. But they know there are miracles that are present. Can those who make this claim do the very same thing? There's no evidence of miracles today. So why do we believe that miracles have ceased? We believe miracles have ceased because the purpose is accomplished, Holy Spirit baptism has ceased, and... It would uh, cease when the complete revelation came about and there is no evidence of miracles today. It's a fair proposition, I want to suggest to you on that last point as we conclude. When someone makes the claim, I believe in Holy Spirit baptism, I believe in miracles today to ask them to perform a miracle. And it's fair to ask them to perform a miracle on someone that you know. I don't want them to bring someone in they claim is lame and they lay hands and suddenly stands up and walks. I want to take them to somebody that I know that is lame or ailing or have serious health problems. You lay hands on them and let's see them be healed. You raise the dead. You work the kind of miracles the apostles worked. And then we'll believe that doctrine. That's why we believe miracles have ceased. I appreciate your attention this morning.